Open up your Bibles. Let's get into Joshua. You know, we are only here three more times this morning, Wednesday night, and then next Sunday, and we will finish our study through Joshua. And I kind of hate to because, wow, so much here. So many good things in this marvelous book. And uh, that's not wrong. That says Joshua 1 through 24. That may, someone's saying, well, that's, that's a typo, right? It's Joshua 1, 24. No, it's Joshua 1 through 24. We're just gonna do the whole book this morning. I have an intent with this, but Father, we just ask your blessing on the teaching of your word right now. Give us insight, Lord, and revelation, and soften our hearts to hear what your spirit is saying to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So turn to Joshua chapter 21. Joshua 21, we'll start there, and then we're just gonna be all over the place this morning. Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Again, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. Ha, kol, ba. Can you say that? Ha, kol, ba. Try that. Ha, kol, ba. Your Hebrew's fantastic. (laughs) All came to pass. Ha, kol is all. It literally means the whole. Ha, kol, the whole. Ba is the word came to pass or literally entered, entered or entered in. So the phrase all came to pass could also be translated the whole was entered. That is what what God promised, what he entered in of the land and the promises. The people then entered in as the fullness and the wholeness of his promises came to pass, all came to pass. Think of it this way. This phrase is like entering data into a computer. You type it in, you hit return, it runs the program, processes the data, and computes the result. Prophecy is the data in God's program that he enters and inputs, it runs in the process of history and or our lives, and then it results in the fullness, in in everything coming to pass. See, that's prophecy and that's history. And I've always viewed the two separately, but they're not, they are so intertwined. You don't have prophecy without history or it's not really legitimate prophecy because everything prophesied becomes history. And the history then sometimes will even yield further prophecy, which is what's really remarkable in the word of God. Israel made their rite of passage. We've been looking at that now for several weeks. They they entered the land. The whole was entered. All came to pass. Ha, kol, ba. So it is with our rite of passage. Same thing. The whole victorious Christian life has been, for most of us, has been entered. Guess what? All must come to pass. All must come to pass. Election results can't change that. One way or the other. All must come to pass. Do you know that this morning? 
Do you know that all must come to pass, that every good promise of God must be fulfilled, it was given prophetically, must be fulfilled historically? Do you know that? Okay, all right, someone, a few. Do do you know that this morning? Now, if you don't, if you're not sure, you need to pay close attention. Can you say, yes, I trust that. Yes, I actually believe that everything that is recorded in Scripture must come to pass, will come to pass in this victorious Christian life. We live the victorious Christian life, but we're looking unto victory, final victory, and it is coming, and I believe coming quickly. You might say, well, it doesn't feel that victorious. Victory seems far off, and maybe, maybe you're struggling to find faith or hold on to hope in this really messed up world Hear it again, ha all came to pass. This is why I'm such a fanboy of Bible prophecy. I really am, I love it, it tickles me, it thrills me, but it's so much more than thrills and tickles. Bible prophecy is truth, and it is great encouragement. Remember that the Hebrew name and configuration for the Older Testament, what we as Christians call the Old Testament, Jewish people call the Tanakh. Tanakh is the acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Torah, the law, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Ketuvim, the writings, and that's how they collate the scriptures in those three sections, those three parts, Torah, the first five books. Then you come to the Nevi'im, the prophets, beginning with Joshua. And we've talked about this and actually seen a lot of this so far that Joshua, according to Jewish thinking, and rightly so, is the first book of prophecy in the Bible. Now, there are prophecies in other books, plenty of them, because all that was spoken in those first five must come to pass, and we see it coming to pass in the book of Joshua, which is really interesting because you would think, no, Joshua is not a book of prophecy. It's a book of history, the fulfillment of prior prophecies. The old rabbis got it right. Joshua is the first book of prophecy because its promises fulfilled in history all came to pass, and it is also promises entered in for history, that is all must come to pass. If you're a Bible student, you know this, that not all prophecy is written in text or, or by declaration. Much prophecy in the Bible comes of, of pictures and types, what we would say today, memes in the Bible, historical things that happen, that, but that actually happen is a picture of something else that will take place later, that the history itself becomes a prophecy. And again, we've seen a lot of this in our study through Joshua. I have tried to hold off. For this teaching, many things that we've come across, I've said, ah, we'll talk about that later. And I've said that several times that we're gonna do this teaching eventually. Well, this morning is that, because you see, This book, the book of Joshua, you could very easily call the revelation of Yehoshua. The revelation of Yehoshua. You see, there are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. How many of you went through the revelation study with us back in 2019? Okay, most of you here first service. I'm guessing second service, it won't be as many people. 
So you remember that. And I want you to draw off of that this morning because we're gonna blaze through 24 chapters of Joshua and we're gonna consider all these things kind of all together in a true revelation of Yehoshua, of Yeshua, of Jesus Christ. So let's revisit some of these themes. Go all the way back to Joshua chapter one and let's start there. Good place to start. Like Julie Andrews saying, let's start at the very beginning. Very fine place to start. Chapter one, verse one. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Yehoshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. After the death of Moses, the lawgiver dies and then, and then Joshua rises. Joshua shows up. This picture is so profound because the law is our tutor that brings us to Christ, right? I want you to note 12 things this morning Points of prophecy that we're gonna see as we go through this. And number one, and you all know this, but we gotta start here, is the distinguishing name. The distinguishing name of Joshua, Yehoshua, which means salvation of Yahweh. Salvation of Yahweh. But remember, that wasn't Joshua's given name. I know this is review, but he, Numbers chapter 13, verse eight, tells us he was of the tribe of Ephraim, and his name was Hosea, the son of Nun. Hosea, son of Nun, listed among the 12 tribes that would go into the land and spy it out. Hosea, but in Numbers 13, 16, it says these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, but Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Yehoshua. Why? Because Moses was a prophet. He changes Hosea to Yehoshua, not because he just had a fondness for Joshua, not because it was a nickname. In fact, Yehoshua is longer than Hosea. Typically, if you nickname someone, you shorten it. But Moses comes along and says, you are no longer Hosea, you're Yehoshua. You are now not just generic salvation, you are Yahweh is salvation. You are salvation of Yahweh. There's a picture that is painted before we even get beyond verse one, and that is that this Joshua would be a picture of our Yehoshua, Jesus Christ. Now, in case you've forgotten, uh, Yehoshua is the Hebrew name. Yehoshua is Jesus Hebrew name. The Aramaic abbreviated name is Yeshua, which is there where we get in the Greek, Jesus, which is then where we get in the English, Jesus. So Yehoshua is the name of Jesus, which is why the angel told Joseph about Mary in Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save, wait a minute, Jesus, Yeshua, Yehoshua is salvation of Yahweh. But the angel told Joseph, he will save. Jesus, God saves, and he will save because of course Jesus is God. And don't forget this, that, that son of none doesn't mean an orphan, nor does it mean a Catholic gal who's given up her habit. I, I thought about that yesterday and go, I gotta do that one. That's, that's good. That's actually written in the notes. I'm gonna repeat it several times, second service, just for fun. Because she's given up her habit, so now she's married, so now she has a son, son of none, right? It's not none, and you know this, it's, it's noon, which means increase, continuance, posterity, and the only other time in the Bible that word is used, Psalm 72, 17, may his name endure forever, may his name increase, noon, 
May his name increase as long as the sun shines and let men bless themselves by him and let all nations call him blessed. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says if he would render himself a guilt offering, that is he must die a guilt offering, he will see offspring. He will prolong days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Yehoshua, son of noon, that is God saves his posterity. Jesus has his posterity, and you can look around and see some of that posterity right here this morning. Verse two, Moses, my servant, is dead. The Lord says to Yehoshua, therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and this people, to the land which I am giving them, to the sons of Israel, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, that's south to north, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's east, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory, there it is to the west. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them, and that is the bulk of the story of Israel in Joshua, in the book of Joshua. That's a summary, really, of the history. You're going into the land, you're taking the land, but this is land that I promised prophetically through your fathers that you would receive. And I am sure that over 400 years in Egyptian captivity, there were many seasons where the Israelites living in Goshen looked at each other and said, this is it. We're never getting out of here. This is the best we've got, leeks and onions in Egypt. And yet the promise was there. We are so in that place. In fact, I would imagine toward the end of the 400 years, maybe perhaps right before Moses came, or maybe after Moses showed up, the deliverer shows up, and then the work increases and it gets harder and they're thinking even when we're sent a deliverer, it goes bad for us. And maybe you're in that place right now at the end of this age. Remember, this country hasn't even been here 400 years, not as a nation. And maybe we sit here now and we go, ah, I just, I get so discouraged. And John Linus told me this morning, you know what the elections proved to me? That I could have a stroke and I could still serve in the Senate. <laughs> I didn't say that, that was John. <laughs> but, but we get in these places and we forget the promises and life gets hard and we just look down and inward and, and into the now and we forget what has God told us? What has he said? All must come to pass. And so we come to the second prophetic meme, a promise by God, and that is number two, driving out the usurper. Driving out the usurper. See, not only were the children of Israel promised that they would be led from their captivity, but they're promised that they're gonna come back into a land and they're gonna drive out those who had taken the land that was promised to Abraham. You ever thought about the Canaanites as usurpers? They were. God gave the land. God who owns the land. God who created all the earth, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything belongs to him, and he, by his determination, says, Abram, I'm gonna give you this land. Walk about it as far as your eyes can see, and he describes it to him. 
I'm giving this to you, Abraham. He repeats it to Isaac. He repeats it to Jacob. This is yours forever. This is my gift to you. But when Israel comes back into the land, out of their captivity, the land had been seized. The Canaanites were dwelling there. They were squatters in a land that belonged to the children of Abraham. What a picture. Even in that, think about this, humanity made in the image of God, given authority over all the earth until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And what happened? We lost the farm to the usurper. See, that was Satan's intent. He slides in there and begins the deception and the lies, and he wrests control of the earth from the original gift that was given to Adam and Eve and humanity. And so, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory or the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the God of this world. Jesus called him the ruler of this world, John 12, 31, saying he will be cast out. Well, he's not cast out right now, is he? No, but he will be. John 12, 32, and I am, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. Well, Jesus crucified has drawn many, but he has not drawn all men, not yet. Although the day is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every knee. Jesus said in John 16, 11, that Satan is the ruler of this world, but the ruler of this world has been judged. So we have a usurper. We have an issue here. Satan, the usurper, who remains in the land, we have not driven him out. When Israel returned to the land, the charge that was given them was to drive out the usurpers. God saying, I will drive them out from before you. But Israel had to be kind of like that, that force going against them God called them into the process, drive them out. I will drive them out before you, but you need to fight. You need to take possession of this land. My friends, we are engaged in a very similar fight right now. To retake possession of the earth in the name of Jesus. Now, now the thing is, you know this, we won't accomplish that. We're not gonna do it. Oh, so what do we do? Hide out in a cave? No, no. We push back anyway. We fight anyway. Because while we will not accomplish it in our strength, Jesus will. And he's called us into the process to push back. More on that in a minute. But think about this with me prophetically. How long did it take Israel to take back the land? In our studies of Joshua, anybody remember how long were they at war pushing back the nations before they really had control of the land? Seven years. Seven years, seven years, we know that. Let, let's do some math, just for fun this morning on a Sunday morning, let's do math. Kalev was 40 years old, we're told, when he went with the 12 spies the first time that they scoped out the land, and that's Joshua 14, verse seven. He said, I was 40 at that time. And then after that, what happened? They came back, told him about the land, the people, the, their faith failed at Kadesh Barnea, and so God said, that's it. This generation's gonna die in the wilderness except for two men, Yehoshua and Kalev. Kalev says, I was 40 years old. Well, then in Joshua 14, he says, he says, I'm 85 now. If you put it together, so he was 38 years old, or, or sorry, he was 40 years old. How long were they in the wilderness? 38 years. 
38 years. Two years to Mount Sinai, 38 years in the wilderness, which makes up that total of 40, but they were only 38 years. So, so Kalev was 40 years old. They were 38 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 2.14 tells us that. And that equals then 78 years. He was 78 when they began the conquest of Canaan. But then Joshua chapter 14, verse 10, he says, now I'm 85. So there you go. There you go. 85 minus 78 is seven. It took them seven years to get to the point where they now were receiving their allotments of land and they had taken, they had taken control of the land. Seven years to retake the promised land. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine. Oh, I know where this is going. Good, good. Daniel chapter nine, picking up in verse 24, in my mind, the most profound prophecy of the Hebrew scriptures. Daniel is to the Older Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. Although I think after this morning, you'll be able to say Joshua is also to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New. But Daniel chapter nine, verse 24, the angel Gabriel has been sent to the prophet Daniel and he says this, which Daniel records, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and finally, to anoint the most holy place. Let me ask you, have all those things come to pass? No, sir. No, they have not. Oh, prophecy failed. Don't get out ahead of me here. First of all, note that it's 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. So who is this prophecy for? Israel. You get that clear right up front. Also, 70 weeks. Weeks is not the word. Write this in your Bible. The word in Hebrew is shabuim, S-H-A-B-U-I-M, if you wanna write that out, or literally, units of seven. 70 units of seven is what the, the, the angel says, 70 shabuim, units of seven. Now, if we take that, and all kinds of math has been done around this, 70 units of seven, well, would that be 70 uh, units of seven days? Or would that be 70 units of seven years? What exactly is that? And so if we calculate 70 units of seven years, you get 490 years. So if we take that as a basis and say, okay, well, let's assume it's years, then you plot it out from there and say, okay, what happened in those 490 years? And that's where it gets really interesting. Verse 25, so you are to know, the angel continues, and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's very specific, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So it's broken into two parts there. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Remarkably specific. So again, assuming maybe it's 490 years he's talking about. So let's, let's talk about that. What happened? First of all, understand the only decree that fits this prophecy, there's only one. There were four decrees given. Only one fits this prophecy related to Jerusalem and it is the second decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus. Longimanus, by the way, is the Latin phrase for longhand. Artaxerxes longhand, because it's said historically that his right hand was longer than his left. Just a little piece of, piece of trivia for you. 
anyone ever wants to dress up as Artaxerxes for Halloween, just make sure you have a longer right hand. So it's only the second, not the first decree that he gave, but the second decree, it's the only one that fits because that's the one that literally was to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that's what the prophecy says. Nehemiah chapter two, verse one through eight. So if you start with that decree and then you start the clock ticking for this 70 units of seven years, this 490 years, and it starts ticking right there. Nehemiah took exactly 49 years to finish the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in times of distress. 49, if you look at verse five, is seven times seven. Seven years times seven, that's the first seven Shabuim. And so all of a sudden, click, that locks into the prophecy. You say, wow, well that's specific and that actually fits exactly what's being said here. Then you go from that point and you do another 62 sevens because that's the next one right there and 62 Shabuim. You go 62 sevens which takes you another 434 years and you arrive on the very day Jesus rode a donkey's foal into Jerusalem. Wow, okay. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, note the word after, after the 62 weeks, not on, not precisely at, but after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Jesus rides into Jerusalem 434 years after Jerusalem is rebuilt. That week, he's crucified. That week, Messiah was cut off, left for dead. He had nothing, just as the prophecy continues to say. Why? Because is Messiah rode in, Messiah rode, the prince rode into Jerusalem and Jerusalem rejected him. Israel rejected him. At the moment of the rejection, God's timepiece stopped. The ticking that began with that first decree, seven, seven times seven, so 49 years, and then continued 434 more years to Jesus coming, and he's rejected, and exactly as prophesied in verse 60, uh, or verse, sorry, 26, Messiah is cut off, and he is crucified. Clock stops. The verse continues. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What happened after the crucifixion of Jesus? Within 30 years, 30, 30 or so years, Jerusalem's destroyed. The city is destroyed by a people, the prophecy says, of the prince who is to come, of a different prince who would come later. Rome destroyed the city. This should tell us something. They destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, AD 70. And that is exactly 69 sevens. That's 483 years prophecy fulfilled in history. Literally and specifically, it is stunning. But you get there and all of a sudden, now it's like, but, but then what? One unit of seven remains. One period of seven years. Seven years. How long did it take Israel to take Canaan? to push back evil and wickedness and actually take authority and control over the land? Seven years, seven years. We, like Israel right now, do not have authority over this earth. It's gonna take seven years for the earth to be restored to the full authority of Jesus Christ. Exactly seven years. Well, okay, but 
but everything up until the 483 years was right on time. And then all of a sudden you're saying it stopped? Well, you can look historically and say what happened seven years from the crucifixion? Nothing. Other than the church was born and began to propagate and disseminate around the world. But there was no event seven years later. There was nothing within those first seven years following the crucifixion that, that fits prophecy or, or took place. So you say, well, well, it's almost as if you got, a, you got a week hanging out there. And that's a big matzo ball hanging out there. They got one, one seven, one unit of seven, one seven-year period. What does this mean? Revelation 6 through 19 graphically depicts this. Look at verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one shabuim. One seven-year period of time. He who, not Messiah the prince, but the prince who is to come will make a covenant with the many for one period of sevens. In the middle of the week, that is three and a half years in, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And Jesus says, when you see this happen, in Matthew 24, when you see this happen at a time yet future, you gotta get out of the city. Very interesting how this all begins to lay in. And again, Revelation chapter six through 19 graphically details a seven-year period of time. It's even in the language of Revelation where those first three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days are described. That language is used in Revelation to speak of the first half of the tribulation period, a seven-year period of time for the conquest of the world. Like Israel's conquest of Canaan, the tribulation, seven years for Yehoshua to take the land. So you see, what we, what we see historically happen is actually a prophetic picture of what will happen, seven years for Yeshua to take the earth and drive out the usurper. Back in Joshua <clears throat> chapter two, verse one. So you've already covered the first chapter, isn't that great? Chapter two, verse one, then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahav and they lodged there. We looked at that story. Boy, it was, it was so recently here. Number three in our prophetic pictures is the dynamic duo. The dynamic duo. The Lord often sends out in twos. And we know this through biblical history. Moses and Joshua, David and Jonathan, Peter and John, Batman and Robin. It's always twos, right, that he sends out. And these two spies are now what I consider prophetic memes, prophetic pictures of two witnesses. The two witnesses to come. You Bible students know, Revelation chapter 11, verse three, says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years, by the way. First three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Clothed in sackcloth. Down in verse seven of Revelation 11, it says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. So we know what this mystical city called Sodom and Egypt is. It's Jerusalem. 
Now, this is interesting to me. It's not just that we have, oh yeah, two spies here, two witnesses here. Okay, two and two, I get it. There's a picture. No, there's more to this because Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem is portrayed because of its sinfulness as a house of harlotry. Where do the two spies go? That Joshua sent into the land of Canaan. They went into the house of a harlot, a house where sodomy was the standard, the house of Rahab. Now, Rahab got saved by faith, complete radical change of life, ends up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But the two spies go to the house of a harlot, just like the two witnesses end up in Jerusalem, the house called Sodom, and the picture continues to be clarified before us. Joshua's spies are unnamed. The two witnesses are also unnamed, though it's pretty obvious that they're Elijah and Moses. We could talk about that another time. But Joshua's spies, interesting, they hid out once they left her house, they hid out in the mountains for three days. Give them a half day to return then to Gilgal and Joshua and Revelation chapter 11, verses nine through 11 tells us the two witnesses will be killed and their corpses lie in Jerusalem for exactly three and a half days. So we see more connection. Coincidence? Keep going. Number four, back in Joshua chapter three, number four is the description of nations. The description of nations. Joshua chapter three, verse 10 Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. And if you count those up in verse 10, that's exactly seven nations. So what? So in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, when God originally promised all the land to Abram, he names 10 nations. Ten nations promised to Abraham, but now as Joshua and the people come to the land, there's only seven left. Daniel describes for us, and I'll just read it to you real quickly here. Daniel describes another prophetic yet geopolitical scene on the land, in the land at that time. Daniel chapter seven, verse seven. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. But it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had 10 horns, like 10 nations. Now remember, Daniel is prophesying after all this stuff happened historically, that God promised 10 nations to Abram, but then when they come back to the land, there's only seven, and now Daniel is prophesying this. He says, while I was contemplating the horns, verse eight, another horn, a little horn, and I'll just let you know right now, that little horn is Antichrist. A little horn came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. Again, this is Daniel's prophetic picture of Antichrist. He plucks out three horns, and how many horns are left? Seven. Ten horns at first, seven horns that are now left. Down in verse 24 of Daniel chapter seven, 
or ver, let me see, verse 11, verse 11 of Daniel 7, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. The rest of the beasts, the rest of the nations, the rest of the horns, if you will. And down in verse 24 of Daniel chapter seven, it says, as for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise. And another will arise after them, that's the little horn, and he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three kings. Three will be knocked out. So at the beginning of the seven year tribulation period, there will be seven primary nations in collusion together over the world. There will have been 10 prior to that. Three are gonna be knocked out, consumed by the Antichrist, and seven then will be left going into the tribulation, and it's Daniel's prophecy of that happening, but it's interesting how it aligns also historically. 10 nations promised to Abraham, seven now needing to be taken out during the tribulation period. Seven nations of the usurper to take down. Seven years to do it, according to prophecy in history. Now wait, you might say. So you're talking about Antichrist. Is, is there an Antichrist meme in the book of Joshua 2? Yes, but you're getting way ahead of me. First, let's go to the Jordan River. Joshua chapter three. Back to Joshua chapter three and look at verse 14. Joshua 3.14, so when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, and remember we talked about this, the Jordan River normally, not too difficult to pass. The Jordan River during flood stage, which is what was happening here, is huge as much as in places two miles and where they crossed could be literally two miles to cross, not to mention all the brush and, and underbrush, very difficult to get through that section of water. And so the waters which were flowing, verse 16, down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. Now, listen real carefully here. Number five in these prophetic pictures is the detention of the waters. The detention of the waters. Psalm 114, verse one says, when Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, Judah became his, that is God's sanctuary. Israel, his, that is the Lord's dominion. The sea looked and fled and Jordan turned back. Jordan turned back, that's historical language in Psalm 114. So they walk into the Jordan, the moment the priest's feet hit the water, you know the story, the water stops. But they're standing in the water, they've got to think about this because it, it stopped several miles up north, they need to wait for it to kind of trickle down. They're standing in the water going, oh, I don't know about this, I don't know, and the water's just going down, it's like, whoa, awesome. And then all of a sudden they look and it's completely dry and they cross to the middle, they hold the ark in the middle, and all of the people then begin to cross in such a way that every single Israelite can see the ark as they cross. And that was a mighty day 
in history, the detention of the waters by God up to the north. But listen to me, depending on context, and that's why this is really important to pay attention here. Depending on context, waters can portray the power of God and as we describe the waters of the Jordan, the Holy Spirit, the living water. We talked about this, that the waters of the Jordan and crossing the Jordan was a picture, a portrayal, I believe, of the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse two, Paul says, all were baptized into Moses and into the sea, speaking of the Red Sea. So that's a picture of baptism, of water baptism as they came through the Red Sea. But now they're crossing the Jordan. And I suggested at the time, and I do again this morning, that is a second crossing, therefore a second baptism. The water's looking like the Holy Spirit, right? That's the picture that I, we kind of ran with. And, and, and water in the Bible, living water, the Holy Spirit, that, that fits very well. But there's another suggestion that we might make here with the detention of the waters. Because water can also describe in the Bible devastation, destruction, flooding, and even the overflow of wickedness. Daniel chapter nine, verse 26, again, says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood a flood of evil that is following the downfall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Bible says you should assume that for from that point until the coming of Messiah again, there's gonna be a flood of evil in this world. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Much devastation has been determined and that's what we've seen. That's what's taken place. Revelation chapter 12 verse 15 says, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman and in that picture, the woman is Israel, the serpent is Satan, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. So you can say, all right, flood waters, waters at flood stage, that's a picture of wickedness, a, a picture of evil overflowing in this world, right? And the picture is compelling. So think about this with me for a minute. The priests are now standing with the ark in the riverbed as the waters are not just detained, but are restrained. Priests standing as restraint against the waters. Are you with me? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, you know what restrains him now, him being Antichrist, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Can I get an amen to that? The mystery of lawlessness is getting more and more obvious in our world. But he goes on and says, only he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. What an interesting thought. He who restrains is very clearly the Holy Spirit, but what restrains? You know what restrains him. There's both a he and a what. He is the Holy Spirit. What? I believe it's the church. The restraining influence that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the church, the restraining influence, the power of the Holy Spirit who himself restrains. Restrains what? Evil. Wickedness, the restraint against these things. And yes, it's like holding back water. I've shared before, when I was a kid, we would try to stand against the waves in Southern California. It never went well, never. But you know what? Every time I stood against a wave, there was some water that didn't get past me. It got on me, but it didn't get past me. Imagine 
all of us aligned against the waves. Yeah, some's gonna get by, some's gonna crash over, some is gonna overwhelm, but we stand as a restraining influence in this world. We stem the tide, we hold back the waves, we stand against the flood of lawlessness. We don't just capitulate and cave in and give up by the determined presence of God. And listen, his presence in us means our presence is required. God needs his people to be present in the world. He needs his people to stand up. Even if you don't feel like your vote counts or your voice counts or your position is gonna make any difference in the world, you stand as part of that restraining influence, the call of a restraining influence against evil as opposed to a tolerance for sin or worse, giving hearty approval to those who do. That call remains on our lives until he who restrains and that which restrains is taken out of the way. And so when the rapture takes place, we are caught up and we are taken out of the way so the spirit goes with us. Suddenly you have a vacuum in the world. The Holy Spirit no longer present as he is today. The church no longer present as we are today. What do you think the flood of wickedness is gonna do? It is just gonna engulf the world. And that's then going into that tribulation period. Now, here's the thing. While that's absolutely true, and it is a very compelling thought, I need to say this, and, and please be aware of this, uh, when you're studying the Bible, you really need to be careful to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Because as I've just described, two very different things, living water, the flood of evil. Well, which one? It can't be both. It can't even portray both. It really needs to be a one or the other. And there is something that leaves this idea of the Jordan as a flood of evil a little wet. The Jordan never portrays evil in the Bible. So while, yes, we are the restraining influence, no doubt, and I wanted to point that out again this morning. Yes, we need to stand, like a royal priesthood, we need to stand that evil be restrained, yet the picture of the Jordan as that kind of evil doesn't work because the Jordan is never, never described and never used to describe evil or wickedness in the Bible. If anything, it's God's safe boundaries for his people. And or as we talked about before, the Holy Spirit and going through it as a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely legitimate to talk about our stand of re restraining the waves of Antichrist wickedness, but you can't use that as a definitive prophetic picture. There's something else here that we can. Now, go back to the idea that the Jordan is not so much the picture of evil, but is actually a picture of the flow of the Holy Spirit, and consider this. God told Joshua to build an altar. Do you remember this? Of 12 stones of remembrance in Joshua chapter four. Set up 12 stones. And so they got onto the other side of the Jordan. They took 12 stones. Joshua wrote the entire Torah law <laughs> on 12 stones. These were then carried to Gilgal, which is a little distance then from the Jordan, and set up at Gilgal as a monument 
for the Jordan River crossing, a reminder to all the Israelites and their children to come of, of what had took, taken place. These stones are from the middle of the Jordan River. How'd you get stones from the middle of the Jordan River, Dad? Well, and how'd they get this writing on it? Let me tell you the story. And so that monument was there, but Joshua did something else, didn't he? Chapter four, verse nine. Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. How do you know? Well, when the water's flowing, you're not gonna see them, especially not at flood stage. Maybe when the waters come down, you might see the tip of one out there in the middle, maybe. But you've got this stand now of 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan. The law is not written on those stones. It's just 12 stones set up there. Why? Number six in our notes, are we on number six? I think we are. The dedicated stones. The dedicated stones, 12 stones for Israel, as I said, set up in Gilgal. 12 stones set up in the midst of the Jordan River. Might this allude to the 12 apostles, which then stand as a picture for the church, which then stands as a picture of the apostles and the church standing in the flow of the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably a more biblical picture, an idea, because 12 and 12, it's interesting. You know, you've got how many elders seated around the throne in Revelation? Anyone remember the number? 24. You have the 24 elders, right? 12 and 12, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of Israel. It's an important number to God. And now we have this interesting, this 12 without the law written on it. Picture of the apostles in the flow of the river. And I'm, I'm convinced that that's the more biblically accurate prophetic picture of living water, the flow of the baptism of the Holy Spirit washing over all of the church, all of us. You know, some of you have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You don't even know it. Praise the Lord. You don't know it because it would just go to your head. It would go to mine. You know, many of us who walk following the Lord, and I'm not saying, oh, okay, well, then I'm covered. No, I, I pursue, as I was talking to a brother just a week and a half or so ago who was saying, I don't know that I've had this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit as, as you've described, but, but I, if I haven't, I want that. I'm like, well, God bless you then you're in the right place. You're in the flow. You're walking in the spirit. You don't have to know, you just have to desire. You have to be open to, Lord, anything you have for me, anything you want for me, whatever gifts, callings, anointings, however you wanna do it, that's what I want, Lord, as opposed to the attitude set that says, well, that doesn't really fit my theology, therefore I'm just gonna say no to that one. Don't say no to anything that the Lord has for you. And the picture, again, is, is of the entire church in the midst of the flow. We all together are in the flow of the Holy Spirit. And yes, that does make us a restraining influence. But you wanna be a rock star in the church? Stay in the flow. Stay in the flow of the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also walk by the Spirit, which is every day of our lives. Now, after Joshua 5, so going back to Joshua, after chapter five, which is Joshua's very literal face-to-face -face with Joshua, Yehoshua meets Yehoshua. He, he comes face to face with that Christophany, that pre-incarnate appearance of Christ who is the captain of the Lord's host. How do you know it's Christ? Well, he tells Joshua, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Only other time that happened was when God was in that place. 
So here's Joshua with that. We covered that story. But after that story, we now come to Jericho, Joshua chapter six. Look at verse four. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Number seven in our prophetic pictures, the display of the ark at Jericho. The display of the ark. This is so cool. We went through a whole teaching about this back on Yom Teruah in September and earlier in our study of Joshua. There's an obvious prophetic parallel to the Priests carrying the seven shofars, blowing the seven shofars, carrying the ark. We see this perfect parallel, judgment falling on Jericho through the blowing of seven trumpets as a picture of seven trumpets that are blown, Revelation chapter eight through, through 11, the seven trumpet judgments in the revelation of Jesus. During the tribulation, right? You can read about those. The seven trumpet judgments, trumpet judgment of Jericho. The prophetic pictures are stacking up here, brothers and sisters, in the book of Joshua, what I'm calling the revelation of Yehoshua. But note this, seven trumpets, seven trumpets. Okay, I got that. But the priests carried the ark as they marched, right? So you would think if it's really a, a tight prophetic picture that we would see the ark show up somehow, wouldn't we? Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven nineteen says, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in the temple. Seven trumpets with the carrying of the ark conquering Jericho. Seven trumpet judgments, the declaration of the kingdom coming to earth, and the ark is there, and the ark is seen. Amazing, the display of the ark. Joshua chapter nine, heading forward. Joshua chapter nine, we talked about a very interesting story about a people called the Gibeonites. I'm trying to move quickly. You, you may wanna review or rethink some of this later, but Joshua nine, verse three says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they also acted craftily or with cunning and they set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled and they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and they said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. They traveled 12 miles, come on. But they were being deceptive, they were terrified of Israel. They did not want to be destroyed as a people and so they thought their only alternative was to deceive these people into making a covenant. Why would they do that? They didn't know God. They didn't understand the character and nature of God. That they could have actually come to Joshua and said, we surrender, we want to serve you and the Lord. But rather than do that, they acted deceptively. This is number eight in your list, the deception of the Gibeonites. This is prophetic. Another amazing picture. Now, what's interesting is the Gibeonite deception actually is a fulfillment of an even earlier prophecy. Genesis chapter nine, verse 24, Noah said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. What did the Gibeonites end up doing? Serving Israel. So this Canaanite clan of Gibeonites 
end up as servants fulfilling Noah's prophecy. The Gibeonites, Canaanites, who, you know, if you know the story, remember it, they become the woodcutters and the water carriers for the tabernacle and later the temple. And a thousand, year later, a thousand years later, they'd still be doing it. There would still be Gibeonites serving the temple in Jerusalem. That became their entire lifestyle and their heritage was to serve Israel and the temple. Now listen, remember, they were deceivers. But as we said when we studied this, they were deceivers who were themselves deceived because they really didn't know who God was. And that's why they deceived. And we made the application to people in the world today, don't get all upset with non-believers. They are deceivers who are deceived. They don't know the truth, the grace, the mercy, the love of God. If they did, they, they would repent, but they don't understand that. Like many of us did not understand that before we were saved. The deceivers are themselves deceived. So they're a picture, the Gibeonites, of those who are blind to the gospel in this age and they will miss the rapture of the church when the restraining influence is caught up and taken away. They will still be here. They will remain. They will miss because they, they didn't believe. They, they didn't know how to believe. And yet Revelation 7 tells us marvelously during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, multiplied millions will believe in Jesus. Some are just gonna believe right away after the rapture and going, I, this, they told me, I read the books, Left Behind series. I read it all. I knew this was coming, but I didn't wanna believe it and it's happened. Oh, Jesus, forgive me. And they're gonna be immediately saved. There's gonna be countless millions who are saved. They're gonna die. It's a brutal way to end life here. Many will be beheaded for their faith by Antichrist and his cronies. But multiplied millions are gonna be saved and we call them, we've termed them tribulation saints. Saints in and of the tribulation. But get this, get this. They are not the church. The church departs this world. The church of 2,000 years up to present day, all those who are living in Christ today and all those who have died in Christ before are caught up together. We are the church. The church is gone, baby, at the beginning of tribulation. There is no church in the world. Man, I can support that with so many things. Revelation two and three that talks about the church over and over and over and then you get to Revelation four and the church isn't mentioned again until it returns with Jesus in Revelation 21. Church is out of here. So to come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation does not make you part of the church, the bride of Christ. No, Revelation 7, 14 says, these are the ones who come out of or out from the great tribulation. They come out just before that great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So they're, they're like the church, but they are not the church. Furthermore, as with the Gabeonites, just as the five Amorite kings in Joshua 10 declare war on Gabeon, guess what? War will be declared on those tribulation saints who now have aligned themselves with God through Christ and are aligned with his people Israel. Well, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says, the dragon, Satan, was enraged with the woman Israel and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So these tribulation saints are targets for the Antichrist and war will be made against them just as war was made against the Gibeonites. 
So what, Rick, you're saying the Gibeonites are a picture of the tribulation saints? Yes, you got it, exactly. Jesus even tells us that a major standard of judgment for Gentile nations in that time of tribulation who survive and enter the kingdom, the standard will be how they treated Israel. Matthew 25, verse 40 is very specific. I mean, you can, you can broaden and apply it more broadly, but it's very specific. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, those would be Jewish people, even the least of them, you did it to me. Again, you can broaden that and say, as you treat anybody, so you are treating Jesus. And we, we use that application. If you care for someone who's poor, if you visit someone in prison, if you go to someone in the hospital, it's like going to Jesus. But Jesus says, as you've done it to these brothers of mine, so you've done it to me. And so the standard of judgment in the tribulation of the nations is gonna be how they treated Israel. How did the Gibeonites end up treating Israel? They served them. They serve the temple. What is going to happen to those who do believe in the tribulation and are martyred for their faith at that time? We don't even have to ask. We know Revelation 7.15 says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Get this, they serve the temple just like the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites truly are a picture of those who come to Israel, they align with Israel, they serve Israel, so the tribulation saints will do the same, ultimately serving in the temple of God. That, that's through the millennial kingdom. But notice this, and it's important, the distinction between the tribulation saints and the church, which is, as I said, the bride of Christ. The trib saints are gonna be blessed to serve in the temple. They will be in the kingdom. They will be blessed with eternal salvation, but the bride will rule and reign with Christ, which is a great distinction. He has made us to be a kingdom, Revelation 1, 6. Priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. That is repeated in Revelation 5, 10 and Revelation 20, verse six. He's made us to be a kingdom and priests not woodcutters and water carriers, though I'll tell you this much, to be a woodcutter and water carrier in the kingdom is still being in the kingdom. So that's a good thing. But I would so much rather be the bride. I would rather be the marriage feast of the lamb. I wanna be there at that time. It's like John Corson used to say, don't lose your head, use your head. If you don't use your head, you're gonna lose it in the tribulation. You're gonna go through the worst time. You think times are bad now. Like I said, imagine the world without the spirit of Christ and without the church. Don't wait, don't wait. Because there will be many who wait and they're gonna die in the first three and a half years before even being able to make a decision. All guarantees are off. Right now, all guarantees are the grace of God is available to you here and now. Don't wait until then. By the way, what makes the church so special? Oh, oh, you get to rule and reign. Well, first of all, the Bible says that. Not because I wrote it, it's what the Bible says. But what is it that makes the church different than these tribulation saints? And it's very simple. Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. You walk by faith. 
excuse me, you trust God now and you will be saved. Number nine, number nine, the downfall of kings. The downfall of kings. Look at chapter 10, verse one. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within the land, that he, this king Adonai Zedek, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Yarmut, and Yaphia, the king of Lachish, and Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, and let's attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and all the sons of Israel. Okay, there's a picture here. Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek is the Lord of righteousness. And this is number nine. This is number nine, the downfall of kings in our list, the downfall of kings. Adonai Zedek, it's a curious name for a pagan king ruling in Jerusalem. So he's calling himself the Lord of righteousness, Adonai Zedek, and he's ruling in Jerusalem, which is the city of peace. Adonai Zedek is a picture of Antichrist. Let me explain how. First of all, Adonai Zedek is a stark contrast to a previous king of Salem that Abram met four centuries earlier named Melchizedek. 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 Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, when Abram came back from a war against kings, Melchizedek comes out of Salem and brought out interesting elements, bread and wine. Now, he was priest of God Most High. Oh, so he's king and priest. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all the spoils of war. Let me just read this to you, but the writer of Hebrews, chapter seven, verse one, talks about Melchizedek and says, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a 10th part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Adonai Zedek is lord of righteousness. Melchizedek is king of righteousness. And also, king of Salem. He's king of righteousness, king of peace. The Hebrew pastor starts to tie in an amazing thing here without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Who does? Melchizedek. Was Melchizedek Jesus? Is this another pre-incarnate appearance? Jesus as Melchizedek coming out of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of God most high? Could that have been Jesus? Well, Jesus did say in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So even if you're not sure if Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus or actually Jesus, doesn't really matter. Jesus predates Melchizedek anyway. 
I think it, it, that Melchizedek was Jesus. But now, listen quickly, the contrast of these two kings. And you're probably not gonna be able to write fast enough to keep up, so just go back and pick it up on YouTube. Adonai Zedek is Lord of Righteousness. Melchizedek is King of Righteousness. Adonai Zedek is King of Jerusalem. Melchizedek is both king and priest. Adonai Zedek wages war. Melchizedek pours out wine. Adonai Zedek comes against Israel. Melchizedek comes to meet Abraham. Adonai Zedek is wiped out by Israel. Melchizedek is worshiped by Abram. Adonai Zedek will be killed and entombed in Joshua 10 in the story. Melchizedek never dies. These are two very different kings. And as Melchizedek portrays Jesus Christ, if not actually being Jesus incarnate, pre-incarnate, Adonai Zedek, Joshua chapter 10, resembles Antichrist. So we even have in this revelation of Yehoshua, in the book of Joshua, we have a, a type of Antichrist in Adonai Zedek. Antichrist, by the way, he's called the son of perdition. He's called the man of lawlessness. He is called the beast. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight says that lawless one will, will be revealed, revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Daniel says Antichrist, like Adonai Zedek, Antichrist will act like a man of peace. I'm Lord of righteousness in the city of peace. But just like Adonai Zedek, he'll be all about that war. He's gonna come out to fight. Daniel 11:38 interesting, interestingly says, he will honor a God of fortresses. That's a God of military might, a God of strongholds. A God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. That is this Antichrist, this so-called man of peace. His military budget will be huge. Revelation chapter six, verse two says, I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So Antichrist is gonna ride in like a savior on a white horse, but his posse includes riders of war, famine, and death. Look who rides with him. Look who follows him. Peace is never gonna come by a man. Peace will never come of human agency. It will only ultimately come when Messiah, the prince of true peace, brings it himself. When I pray, Lord, your, will be, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same as praying for the peace of Jerusalem because there's only gonna be peace in Jerusalem when his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven by Jesus Christ. Adonai Zedek, wiped out in the valley of Aijalon, Antichrist is gonna go down in the valley of Armageddon. Daniel 11:45. he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end. And it's almost sad, although he is so evil and so wicked, it's good. It says, no one will help him. Satan's gonna use him up and spit him out, just like Satan uses up and spits out everybody that he overtakes. 
even Antichrist. By the way, remember that long day of battle in Joshua chapter 10, verses seven through 11, when the sun stood still, and that's an amazing true story. It says, in that time, Joshua 10, 11, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died, more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Well, there's part of the picture of the downfall, not just of one king, but of kings. Revelation 16, 21, huge hailstones. About 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men, men blasphemed God because of the the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe. And so there it is again, a picture in type in Joshua 10, hailstones falling. We see it in Revelation 16 happening again on planet Earth. The downfall of kings. The king Antichrist. The kings of the seven nations. All taken down. This is interesting too, Joshua chapters 11 and 12, we won't even read, but they're all about the conquest of the north. So as you follow this prophetic type through, the conquest of the north, that is the Galilee, where is it that Jesus established his ministry? Matthew chapter four, beginning in verse 13, says, leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. People who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. That's Isaiah's prophecy, chapter nine, verses one and two. And Matthew says, Jesus fulfilled that. It's amazing. Jesus went to the same region. So Joshua, Yehoshua takes the people and they go up to the north region of the Galilee and there they defeat the kings in the north. And that is the same region where Jesus established his ministry and drove out demonic hordes in the first conquest, you could call it, of his ministry. Downfall of kings, downfall of principalities, downfall of rulers, downfall of demons. Number 10, number 10. Number 10 is easy and obvious. The division of the land. Chapters 13 through 21 of Joshua covers the division of the land. That in and of itself is a prophetic meme of what is to come. Ezekiel 47 and 48 describes the exact same thing, the future allotments of the land of the 12 tribes of Israel in the land of Israel for the coming kingdom. So we're, we're now up to chapter 21 in Joshua and what we've seen is prophetic picture after picture after picture after picture that we see in Revelation, the revelation of Jesus that that is what the book of Joshua truly at heart is about. So all of this and more, by the way, which I'm gonna leave to you if you wanna pull out more prophetic pictures and several of you have as we've gone along, but all of this comes to one final prophetic conclusion this morning. The data is entered, the outcome is absolutely certain by number 11 in your notes, the determination of the Lord the determination of the Lord. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass, Joshua 21, 45. All came to pass by the determination of the Lord. Listen, on the night that Jesus was resurrected, that morning, that evening, he shows up. 
That evening he spoke these words, Luke 24, 44. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All things, as Joshua said, all came to pass. And Jesus says, all must come to pass. Hakobah, all things came to pass. All things now must come to pass. The word is entered in. The cross is like hitting the return key. The resurrection, all the data concluded, Jesus must and will return. Jesus is coming and he's coming quickly. So what's left to do? Well, we can't leave the number at 11, can we? Number 12 in your notes, what is left to do? Decide, decide. The decision is yours. At the very end of the kingdom age, and this is the final parallel, something happens. In Revelation chapter 20, verse seven, we're told that after a thousand years of peace and prosperity under the righteous reign of Jesus, unbelievably, Satan will be released from his imprisonment in the pit or Tartarus or the Abuso, as the language goes. Satan's gonna be released after the kingdom age. Why? And he's gonna go out, the Bible tells us, as if to deceive one last time the nations and multiplied millions are gonna follow him. What? Why? Because people even then must be given a choice that no one is gonna enter into eternity forced into heaven, dragged into heaven, or lured into heaven by peace and prosperity. They will have the opportunity, like you and me today, to make a choice. Where's the parallel? The book of Joshua comes to an epic conclusion around these profound words, Joshua 24, verse 15. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers that your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're gonna come back and look at that one more time next week. But this morning, decide, decide. And be encouraged. If you're discouraged, be encouraged. Know for a fact, Jesus is coming back. All things came to pass and all must come to pass. And he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word to us and for the overview this morning and, and for putting it all together. Lord, it's just so awesome. It's so awesome, Lord, because not just fun, and yes, it is fun, but Lord, it's awesome because this reveals to us your intentionality. It proves that historically you are a fulfiller of prophecy. Therefore, in days to come, you must do the same thing. And while we might be shaky and struggling and find difficult things in life right now, even in the victorious life when victories seem far from us, oh Lord Jesus, you promised to come. So we join together with one voice this morning and say, amen, come Lord Jesus. And until you do, until you do, give us the strength to stand. 
Give us the prophetic vision to know that the future is secure, that all things must come to pass. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the joys of, of teaching the Bible and just being uh, in, in the role that God's called me to is I have no idea what decisions you have to make. That really is between you and God. My job is just to teach the word and then I have to make my own decisions. So we're all in this boat together this morning and I don't know what decision you need to make before the Lord today, but whatever it is, decide. Decide today. Maybe there's something God has asked you to do and you have just been putting it off and you have, or you've forgotten about it, go back to that place. What's the last thing he asked you to do? Decide to do that. And maybe you've never even decided to follow Jesus. I invite you to do that today. Won't you come to him?